Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today, really all of Psalm 2, but especially this verse. The Lord says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is our text. When Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, the the Roman governor asked him if he was the king of the Jews. Of course, Jesus answered the question then, but really, it had already been answered centuries earlier with the Old Testament passages that talked about the coming Messiah. Those passages are spread throughout the Old Testament, but but during Lent we're focusing in on the Psalms, and and so I want to use just Psalm 2 to talk about the fact that, that the Messiah was coming and has come. Psalm 2 fits into a category of Psalms that are known as the Messianic Royal Psalms. And today we're going to, uh, to have two parts to the sermon. Uh, those are in your, your sermon outline. I think it'd be especially helpful today if you have that, that sermon outline in front of you. We're going to talk first about the, the psalm itself, and then we will talk about the king that this psalm prophesies. As to the origin of the psalm, we are uncertain. It could have been composed for and used at the the coronation of of none less than King David, or maybe kings later. We really don't know. The structure of the psalm is is pretty clear, though, and that's what's going to be especially helpful for you to see in the sermon outline. And I borrowed that, as the footnote says there, from the Lutheran Study Bible. The question is, why do the nations oppose the Lord? That's really how we can, can sum up those first three verses in the psalm. And it's a good question, isn't it? The fact that they do oppose the Lord gave rise to, uh, to another category of psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms or psalms of cursing, which is Pastor Adam's assignment for next week. I'm interested to see how he handles that one. But the question in in this psalm does help to set things up for him next week, but also for us today. Maybe today we had asked the question differently. Maybe we would, would phrase it more along these lines. What are they thinking? Certainly it seems such folly to oppose God. Or, or even to deny his existence as, as so many want to do. But they do that in vain and at their own peril. The psalmist asks, why do the nations rage against the Lord? Exactly. Why do they hate him? Why do they think they can get away with hating him? That's the next section. They can't get away with it. God just laughs at their foolishness. And you know, it's never a good thing to have God laugh at you. 
He is mocking those who mock him. Just brushing away as insignificant their opposition to him. Martin Luther encourages us to do the same thing. Instead of worrying so much about what others think or, or say or do, Luther suggests this. Let us laugh at raging Satan and the world. Great advice. So let's do that. Let's, let's laugh at Satan. You think you can harm me? Ha! Not going to happen. You can't even touch me. Why not? That's the next section, the son's rule. It's in this section that we, we find the theme for the entire psalm. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. For a newly crowned king in Israel, this would be a marvelous promise of, of God's protection and blessing. This would be the king mentioned in our, in our text for today. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Can I tell you a little bit about Zion? For one thing, it's mentioned, the term is used 169 times in the Bible. And originally, it, it meant to defend as in a fortress. The term is first used in 2 Samuel when, when King David wants to capture the city of Jerusalem, which at the time was, was under the control of, of people called the Jebusites. And, and because of its strategic and, and very defensible position, the Jebusites were laughing at, at David, at, at his foolish thought that, that he would ever be able to conquer them. But it turns out that David had the last laugh. 2 Samuel 5, verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now, if you travel to Jerusalem today, you may well visit a model of the city as it was at the time of Jesus. This is one view of the model. Let's, let's get our bearings. We're, we're looking south to north. This is the Temple Mount, actually that whole wall around there, that's the, that's the retaining wall, and on top of that's the Temple Mount, which is more than 30 acres large, and, and a portion of that is where the temple itself is located. This part of the, uh, the retaining wall is, is called the Western Wall, it used to be called the Wailing Wall, and, and that's the one you see all the time in images from Jerusalem with people there praying. But here's what we're most interested in today, and that is Zion, the city of David. When we were in Jerusalem last month, our guide gave us a, a great illustration of, of a way to remember how the ancient city was situated. He borrowed my hat to do it. So state fans, you can look away if you want to. But he talked about how the, how the brim of the hat really was like the, the very first part of Jerusalem, Zion, the, the city of David, and then how the crown of the hat was the Temple Mount and, and the area surrounding that. 
If you look at the model again, you can see a little bit how, uh, how that works. Well, the city of David today is a place where they're doing a lot of, of excavations and they're discovering all kinds of things, many of them directly related to the Scripture. It's just fascinating. There came a time where the word Zion, though, really wasn't so much a reference to, to that first part of the city, the, uh, the, the city of David. It, it came more frequently to refer to the, to the crown of the hat, to the Temple Mount. That's, that's where God met his people, where they came to seek him. After a while, it was also used to talk about the whole city of Jerusalem, because that's where the temple was. And then, and this is really the way it was used in our Psalm of Confession today, it, it referred to the entire nation of Israel. And then sometimes to all believers here and in eternity. So all kinds of different meanings, really, ways in which that term was used. And we don't know exactly uh, what the psalmist had in mind with, with the term in Psalm 2, but it doesn't really matter. It was certainly talking about a strong refuge or fortress where the king would be enthroned, where he would be safe from all of the nations who were surrounding him and, and raging against him. What well, was, was that the king to whom the theme verse in Psalm 2 refers, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Maybe the, the other verses um, kind of seem like maybe that's the case. It talks about the, the rule, the, the, the kingship, the kingdom of this son. Could be talking about an earthly king of Israel or could be referring to the real king of the Jews. We'll come back to that in a minute. The last section of, these, uh, of this psalm, these verses, is, is characterized in the study Bible as being a warning, and, and certainly so. In these verses, the, the kings of the earth, the same ones who stood in opposition to God at the, in the first part of the psalm, are warned it's time for them to submit to the son, to the king, to kiss him in submission or else. What's in parentheses, though, I've decided I, I wanted to add to what was in the study Bible because in addition to being a warning, these verses contain a promise that, that we don't want to miss. And the promise is, blessed are all who take refuge in him. All who trust the Son to be their Zion, their fortress, will be blessed. Last week in, in his sermon, Pastor Adams mentioned that, that Psalm 2 ends the way that Psalm 1 begins with that word, blessed. And he, he talked about the fact that this blessing from God really isn't so much the nice things that we have or the good times that we enjoy, rather is something much more substantial, and that is a, a state of being that transcends current circumstances. It takes a little bit to think about that, but what a great definition that is. We achieve this wonderful state through faith in the Son. The Son in whom we put our trust and therefore are blessed. 
in the psalm, verse 2, identifies this son as the Messiah. Your sermon outline notes that the Greek word for Messiah is Christ, and the English translation is anointed one. He is the king of Psalm 2. In the New Testament books of Acts and Hebrews both, that theme verse from the psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is applied to none other than Jesus. Which brings us back to where we started with Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, yes, indeed, I'm the king of the Jews. And that prompted Pilate to, to write that down and, and to put it on Jesus' cross. He put it in three languages, but it all translated the same way. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Girls and boys, we have that in our church somewhere, that placard that, that says that on it. Do you know where that is? Can you see it? about now or maybe now or or now that's as close as I can get and actually it's above there too but I wanted to show this cross because that's the cross that's that's on our altar only during the season of Lent Uh, that came over here in 1845 so we don't have it out that often but it really is designed to be a Lenten cross and as, as you look at the top maybe you can see that little note that's up there and if you're close enough to it you can see there's letters on there the letters are I N-R-I, which are the the first letters in the Latin for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. See, the Latin alphabet does not have a J, so you have to use I for Jesus. And, of course, it's for Nazareth. R is for the Latin word rex, which means king. And then the last I, um, Jew. So Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The man on that cross is the king to which Psalm 2 points. He was anointed, set apart for this very purpose, to hang there. Jesus talked about that in our gospel reading today. As Moses lifted up the serpent, remember that serpent was lifted up on a pole, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, Jesus said, must the Son of Man be lifted up. And while the Son, the King of the Jews, was hanging there, the nations, the people were gathered around the cross and they were raging at him. But this time, God didn't laugh at them. He didn't thwart their evil scheming and scoffing because this time their plan fit in perfectly with his plan for the salvation of the world. So must the Son of Man, the Messiah, be lifted up, Jesus said, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So while the Bible never says it this way, I think it would be okay to add yet one more way to talk about Zion. I think it could be okay for us to identify the cross as being Zion, the fortress 
in which we take refuge and where we receive that wonderful blessing of forgiveness of sins and life everlasting in Jesus' name. Jesus, he is the Messiah about whom we sing. He is the Son. And through faith in him, we know that God declares us to be his sons and his daughters. Loved by God. Finding our refuge in God and in the cross of Christ. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.